0: Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today, we have the story of Lieutenant Junior Grade Nathan Gordon. Gordon was a naval aviator during the Second World War, and in February of 1944, would be stationed in New Guinea piloting an aircraft known as the PBY Catalina. Now the PBY Catalina was a unique aircraft for the second world war, pretty versatile and not something that comes to mind for me, at least when I think about aircraft during that conflict, the PBY, well, PB stands for patrol bomber. And then Y has to do with the manufacture of the aircraft, but it was slower, slower, I guess I'll say, um, had a larger fuel capacity and extended range And what that meant is that it could be used in different missions than maybe a standard fighter or bomber could be used for. A couple of those major missions are going to be things like scouting reconnaissance. In fact, I think it was a PBY Catalina that first noticed the Japanese fleet during the Battle of Midway. It would also be used in anti-submarine warfare, but most notably here in the story that's going to apply with uh, Lieutenant Junior Grade Nathan Gordon is going to be the search and rescue function. The PBY Catalina is a seaplane which means that it can land and take off from the water. That's going to be pretty important in the Pacific theater where we're just talking about the vast Pacific Ocean and a lot of islands in between that were kind of bouncing between. Gordon is a pilot serving with the 34th uh, Patrol Squadron. Yeah, Patrol Squadron 34 stationed out of New Guinea. And one of their main jobs is going to be search and rescue of downed pilots in the Pacific Ocean. Now think about that. It's a different type of issue in the Pacific than in the European theater of operations. If you're a pilot, even flying over the English Channel at times, but let's say you're bombing France or Germany, even before D-Day, and your plane gets hit. Say your plane's going to crash. You can bail out. You can pull your parachute and bail out. You're going to land behind enemy lines, but you're going to have an idea where you are. You potentially can evade. Maybe the French resistance can help move you back to friendly lines. Maybe you get captured and end up spending some time or the rest of the war in in a prisoner of war camp. Or maybe your plane isn't destined to crash. You just have to land. You have to do an emergency landing. Well, at least you've got land to drop that aircraft into. Now, it's enemy held land, but you've got a fighting chance. If you move over to the Pacific, we're talking about a vast ocean. A lot of times these missions taking place hundreds of miles with no land in sight. And when planes would get shot down, let's say a plane is damaged, not shot down. If a plane is damaged, flying over and bombing a Japanese held island, they don't want to land on the Japanese held island and hope for the best. So they're going to try to make it back to base. Sometimes that's, that's hours of flying still. And, you know, maybe a couple of bullet holes, fine. but But what if parts of the aircraft are missing? What if, uh, engines are out? What if it's leaking fuel? How far can you make it? So a lot of times these pilots would make it back as far as they could before doing a couple things. Usually in the Pacific, they would do something known as ditching at sea, which sounds, sounds maybe easier than it is. It was a, it was easy. They're going to try to land in the water is what it means. And it's incredibly risky. A lot of people died this way. It's by no means guaranteed that you're even going to land, but they would ditch at sea, get into a life raft and cross their fingers. Cross their fingers because it's not like they have a GPS beacon that they have attached to their persons or attached to their plane. When they go down, sometimes their fellow pilots in their unit wouldn't even know until the rest of the aircraft got back. So let's say it's a four hour flight and your plane goes down one hour into the return, it's three hours before your buddies can, assuming they even saw you go down, it's it's three hours before they can even notify anybody that you're down. They have to organize a rescue mission. And then what do we say? Three hours? So three hours at least back, you're going to do a lot of moving in the Pacific Ocean in a life raft in six hours, seven hours, eight hours. So these poor pilots going down in the Pacific would, I mean, hope for the best. Now, one of the ways that they'd be rescued are with these PBY Catalinas because how are you going to pull this guy out of the ocean? A, you're hoping for a allied ship. That'd be great. That'd make it nice and easy. But a lot of cases, that's a pretty big challenge. And you're not going to divert the US Navy out of its way to go pick up maybe one pilot that you don't actually know is there. Remember, there's not a a GPS beacon going off in this guy's raft so you'd send these PBY Catalinas piloted by people like Lieutenant Junior Grade Nathan Gordon that could fly pretty long distances at pretty slow speeds and could look for survivors in the water and if they saw one they could land that's a little bit better than a dive bomber or a fighter that, that, that can see the people in the water but they can't do anything about it Now, by February of 1944, the United States has generally, we'll call it the midpoint, really, of their march from east to west. Remember, it was 1941, late 1941, December of that year. The Japanese struck Pearl Harbor, really pulling the United States into the conflict, pulling the United States into the Second World War, specifically the Pacific Theater at that time. And we kind of slowly made our move back it would, I believe it was August of 1942, we land at Guadalcanal in the Solomons in the South Pacific. And we start to work our way west towards what is everybody believed to be the landings, the invasion of the Japanese main island. Now, one of the reasons we continue to push further and further in and take island after island is the need for airfields. You know how many aircraft and pilots we would save? if instead of that 600 mile trip over open ocean, there was just one island at the midway point that they could land at, that's a lot of saved lives. That's a lot of aircraft that are not at the bottom of the ocean right now, but could you know maybe be repaired. Hey, worst case, you can pull some parts from it, right? And and of course, if you're saving five, six, nine, eleven 11 crew members because they have a stopover point, maybe they don't make it all the way back to their original base, with the rest of their crew. And maybe it takes them weeks to get all the way back with them, but they're alive. So one of the major strategies during this island hopping campaign, moving through the Pacific is going to be focused on airfields. Now, certain airfields hold certain type of aircraft. I know, but if it's at least a friendly held Island, the pilots have a chance. I mean, even if they have to crash land and, and parachute out the side of the aircraft, that's a totally different story than having a crew lost out in the Pacific. We don't know if they're alive. That's another thing with this, right? Like how many, how many times are you going to send out a rescue mission without knowing whether or not the pilots are even alive? That's often the case during the Pacific theater and the second world war. So by 1944, we have taken a series of islands. We've taken the, um, the Marshall islands and we're going to start looking west, um, start looking west across this north, south line imaginary north-south line that is kind of the Japanese protective shield, if you will. Now, there's two major bases, one south and one we'll call central Pacific, that the Japanese are still using at this point in late 1943, early 1944, that are kind of kind of play into the mission that Gordon is flying. In the north is an island or a chain of islands. Um, maybe atoll is the better way to say it, known as truck, T-R-U-K, and it houses, it's a, it's a major harbor for the Japanese fleet, naval fleet, and uh, has a substantial air base there. So it's a big-time Japanese base in the Central Pacific, going to have to be dealt with in one way or another. South of that, almost directly south, quite a ways, but directly south, you have another one on the island of New Britain, this one known or called Rabal. This is also a major, major Japanese hub kind of in the outer ring of their main defense. Now Rabaul is similar to truck in that it is a major naval harbor, base, and airfield. And while the Americans are on uh, Guadalcanal in 1942 and 43 and kind of moving up through Bougainville and and fighting in New Britain and on on New Guinea, it's the pilots and the aircraft out of Rabaul that are attacking the American forces. So at this point in the war, early in the war in the Pacific, the Japanese have a, a, a sizable air force that is causing some damage on American shipping, on American um, warships, and on American troops on these islands. We're gonna have to deal with Rabal. We're gonna have to deal with Truck. Now, they're approached in two different ways in early February, right around the time that Gordon's mission is gonna take place. Truck is gonna be hit directly in mid, uh, mid-February mid 1945, mid-February 1944 by American carrier groups. So they're going to take that on and actually devastating effects pretty well knock the significance of that atoll over the course of two or three days, knock the significance of that atoll out of the way. They're going to do, Allied warplanes are going to do incredible damage in a very short window at truck. Now Rabaul, we're going to treat a little bit differently. They're going to continue to hit it with aircraft, but we're kind of Kind of go around it. So we're going to attack New Britain, but we're going to, and Rabaul is on New Britain, but it's on the northern tip. We're going to really land in the south and southwestern tips. And rather than attack this upwards of 100,000 Japanese force head on, we're going to kind of let it wither on the vine is the term. Now we're still going to attack it, but we're going to cut it off by moving around the north side through New New Ireland and a, a series of islands known as the Admiralty Islands. So we're going to cut it off. And over time, they won't be resupplied. Nobody can get in and out. And the Japanese eventually will surrender a little later in the war. And the battles there are actually, given the the troop sizes, that strategy probably worked. I think there were a lot of, uh, could have been a lot more casualties on both sides had the Allies decided we're going to take this head on and take Rabaul. One of the areas right outside of Rabaul that much needed stopping point between two major air bases is on the island of New Ireland, just north. And on the tip of that island, the northern tip, is a little area known as Cavene, K-A-V-I-E-N-G, Caveen, I believe it's how it's pronounced, probably not pronounced correctly. And on February, so as we're knocking out truck north on February 16, 17, 18, and we're bypassing Rabaul, we have to cut this major supply line to make sure that nobody can reinforce one or the other. Enter a bombing run from the 5th Air Force on Kavin on February 15th, 1944. Some bombers and low level strafing uh, attack aircraft are going to hit Kavin on that day, and a few are going to be shot down. It's pretty well defended. As the rest of the aircraft make it back to New Guinea, Gordon and his men are notified that there's men down, pilots down that bailed out, so they're alive up near the island of New Ireland. He gets in his aircraft and takes off. He's escorted by a few P-47 Thunderbolts. And the idea there is if any enemy fighters come up, he can continue to do his job and the fighters will deal with the enemy planes or maybe they can suppress enemy air defenses on shore. We don't know exactly where these downed pilots are. Gordon, as he approaches the island, as he gets near the island, spots his first group of wreckage kind of in the water. So he lands. Now, I I tend to think of these seaplanes as when they land, they're landing on a calm lake or um, calm, calm anything is what comes to mind. And those are the pictures I have when I've seen videos of this, because that's the safest way to do it. You don't have the luxury of landing in the best conditions when you're out there trying to save lives in the middle of a war. So Gordon lands amidst 20 foot waves. I think it said 16 to 18 foot. So I'll try to be specific. there: 16 to 18 foot waves. Looking for survivors. There wasn't somebody waving a flag. He saw wreckage and went down amidst those waves and said, we're going to see if there's anybody here. He couldn't find any survivors of that crash site, or at least not in that vicinity. And the plane was starting to take on water, starting to be damaged in a way where they might not be able to take back off. So starts the engine, backs up, gets the engines going again, takes off and quickly gets word that there's a few more sites. They've spotted some American survivors some pilots down. He lands at one of them and has to shut off the engine in order to complete the rescue. So, you know, again, these guys are moving in the ocean there. He has to land the plane. He has to spot these guys, land the plane, taxi over to where they are, 16-foot waves at least, right? Get to their location, pull them on board, get them secured, and two times he does this he has to shut off his engines to do it, which means that he is a sitting duck for the Japanese guns on the shoreline, not far away, and the Japanese aircraft that are still very, very active at this point in the war. But after two instances of shutting off his engines, getting these guys on board, as I'm talking through it, it sounds like it's a fast event. It's not fast. It's sitting there in the enemy's sights for a very long period of time. So long that he's running low on fuel, and he's at about capacity in terms of how many people he can hold. So he starts heading back to base. But he gets a call that another group of downed American pilots has been spotted, 600 meters from the Japanese-held shoreline. Now, these pilots, when they get shot down and they're in the ocean, there's a couple different ways this can go. They can maybe float out in the water for an indefinite amount of time. Maybe they're rescued. Maybe they're not. Or they can they can head to land and be captured by the Japanese. And being a Japanese prisoner of war during the Second World War was not always a was not always a positive experience. We'll say that these men may not have survived captivity. So six hundred meters from the shoreline, Gordon gets the word. He spins his aircraft around and flies in. Now, what he doesn't want to do is fly directly at the shoreline because if he does that, he's going to be a low, slow target for the Japanese guns that are looking for him and any other American aircraft. So instead, he circles out over the island, around the island, and comes in low, almost buzzing the Japanese guns, catching them by surprise, and landing to pick up these six American pilots, six American air crew, I should say, that are in the water. Under the nose of these Japanese guns, they can shoot them out of the sky like that. He picks up the six, but has an issue. Because now, airplanes can't, aircraft can't haul an, an indefinite amount, you know, an unlimited amount of weight. There's a set amount of weight where they can't take off. They become too heavy. Gordon is playing around with that weight right now. They are over the listed max weight for the aircraft. And they've got these waves that are still about 16 feet tall, and he's trying to take off. The risk he runs is if he can't take off and can't get up high enough fast enough, take the enemy—there's f- Japanese pl- There's Japanese shore batteries shooting him. Take that out of the equation. If he can't get up fast enough, he'll crash into one of the waves and will likely kill all on board. But now with 15 rescued air, air, airmen <laughs> on board his aircraft, He fights and fights and fights and gets the aircraft up, takes off, and heads back home. Makes it back to New Guinea with 15 American airmen that otherwise would have been lost at sea or taken prisoner by the Japanese. And for that action, for that daring rescue mission, for that Lieutenant Junior Grade Nathan Gordon conducted on February 15th, 1944, he'd be awarded the Medal of Honor. Very quickly, I think it was just a few months later in September, he he was uh, he received that award. Now he would survive the war, and would go back to his home state of Arkansas, where he would serve twenty years. I think nineteen forty seven to nineteen sixty seven, I believe, as lieutenant governor of the state. And in two thousand eight, at the age of ninety two, Nathan Gordon passed away. But an incredible story, a great story. An awesome Medal of Honor story where somebody is saving lives and rescuing people to bring home, um, and for that he's put in for the award, as opposed to so many that we hear about and so many we we talk through where it's a matter of taking lives um, or or giving your life. Lieutenant Junior Grade Nathan Gordon, on the other end of that, and for his actions off the island of New Ireland on February fifteenth, nineteen forty-four, be awarded Medal of Honor.